David Sloan Wilson has written basically a rebuttal to uh, Atlas Rugged called Atlas Hugged. And uh, just imagine what it would be like if that novel succeeded to the degree of Rand's novel and just became a, a fictional cosmology. What if it had the impact of Atlas Shrugged? Just think about that. You mean millions of people just kind of following its philosophy uh, without thinking it through? Because that's... <laughs> From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. So, Nick, you're you're only a few years older than me. And uh, for uh, late boomers like us, when we were in high school, there was this uh, this book that you just had to read. People told us I never I couldn't get through it. But uh, did did you read Atlas Shrugged? I did read Atlas Shrugged. My dad recommended that I read it when I was in high school. I must have been 16, 17. You know, my dad was a my dad was a very intellectual person and had read basically every book, but he thought it was an important book to read. But also, he dismissed it as nonsense. But he just said, "Look, dude, you got to read this because um, everybody does." And I do remember reading it and having it. I, I was a little bit puzzled by it, but it's been so long uh, that you know. What is interesting is that for a particular personality type, people who came out of the womb as sort of selfish and non-empathetic, <laughs> uh, boy, did it speak to them. It was like, oh, you mean the more dickish I am, the better off everyone else will be? Awesome. You're describing teenagers. Well, or... <laughs> I mean, come on. This, is this, by the way, is why this appeals to 16, 17-year-olds. Yeah, I'm also describing lots of investment bankers. <laughs> okay. And software entrepreneurs. And Oh, uh, my you God. Know, and, yeah. You know, and, and look, Atlas Shrugged was a way to package up the most potent and appealing ideas in sort of neoclassical economics and neoliberalism. And it was a very effective way to get the word out and to persuade people that these ideas were both true and, and morally valid, I guess, and helped propel the neoliberal movement along. I, I believe, it, you know, even, even Milton Friedman required oh, yeah. his his uh, associates to read it. They were close friends. They were yeah. part of, you know, he That's was right. part of her, her salon, as was former uh, Federal Reserve Chair Alan Greenspan. Right. So, uh, you know, big fans of Ayn Rand knew her personally. And, you know, the importance of this terrible little book, and, and I say that because really it's, it's, you know, as a work of fiction as a piece of art, it's not very good, but it's incredibly influential. And it speaks to one of the themes that uh, we've touched on since the very beginning of, of the Pitchfork Economics podcast, Nick. And that is the importance of narrative, not just in shaping the way we understand the world, but in reshaping the world itself through that reflexive process. What we believe about the world uh, actually changes how we interact with it and uh, ends up changing the world, which influences what we believe about the world. Yeah. And this book has played an outsized role 
in creating a lot of the problems we're living through today. That's right. And uh, today on our podcast, we get to visit with our old friend, David Sloan Wilson, the evolutionary biologist, who has written basically a rebuttal to uh, Atlas Shrugged called Atlas Hugged. And, you know, the reason David's book is consequential is that I think it more accurately reflects both what people are really like and what the true sources of prosperity and stability are in human societies, which is, you know, altruism and, and uh, reciprocity and cooperation. So with that, let's, uh, let's chat with David. My name is David Sloan Wilson. I'm an evolutionist and I'm plugging my newest book, my first novel, Atlas Hugged. I've known you a long time. Goldie's known you a long time. We've certainly known of you for an even longer time, but no one ever knew that you were the spawn of a great novelist. <laughs> so, like, we had no idea. Well, my dad was a very famous novelist of his day, and that day was the same uh, era as Ayn Rand. And so her novel, Atlas Shrugged, was published in 1957. And my dad's most famous novels, The Man in the Gray Flannel Suit and A Summer Place, were published in 1955 and 1957. And they're still discussed today as basically putting his finger on the generation, the corporate army that formed after World War II, and changing sexual mores during the same, during the same period. So when I grew up, my dad was a household word. Uh, the movies had, you know, Gregory Peck and Trey Donahue and Sandra Dee, and, and uh, so there were major blockbuster movies. And, and imagine what that was like for a skinny little kid <laughs> growing up yeah. with, uh, with uh, just a completely larger-than-life dad. I did become a scientist to escape his shadow, but at the same time, I retained that sort of novelistic urge to understand the human condition. And the moment I saw that evolutionary theory could be used to study the human condition, I could do that through the lens of a theory rather than through the lens of my personal experience, then I was just drawn to these themes of altruism and prosociality and and um, and and so on as my as my scientific subject matter and love to write and so I wrote nonfiction and people tell me that my nonfiction books are very story like so I imported some of my dad's talents into that but uh, but writing a novel oh man I have to tell you that was just for me this this homecoming that uh, hard to describe what a intense and positive experience it was. So for our listeners who either have not read Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand or who read it when they were 16, can you kind of outline both the storyline and the, you know, the dominant narrative of that very important book? Yeah. So let's just do the storyline. It focuses on a, a brilliant engineer named John Galt. The phrase, who is John Galt, is, I think, the first sentence of the, uh, of the book. And he is um, uh, basically, and in, in Ayn Rand's characters were about the heroic individual, that there's a special class of, of men, always men, that are the doers of the world. And then everyone else is a moocher and a parasite, and they don't understand that the source of their welfare are these doers. 
And so John Galt is, um, uh, claims to be able to create a, um, a machine, uh, an engine that runs off of static electricity, claims to provide an inexhaustible source of clean energy. He reminds me a little bit of Elon Musk, basically. Uh, you know, no task too audacious. Anything can be done. But he ends up going on, he ends up leaving, going on strike, and he starts a strike of doers, which uh, brings uh, society to a halt, is, is the thumbnail sketch of uh, Atlas uh, Shrugged. And so it was the embodiment of the sort of the heroic individual who uh, pushes against all odds. So would either of you like to add to that? Yeah, I, I mean, that story is the origin story of me, you know, sort of neoliberal trickle-down memes like the job creators, right? Yeah, makers and, and takers. Makers and takers. Yeah. Um, right. Of course, the story is as old as humanity, and Plato had a, you know, sort of a, a human topography that matched that of gold, silver, and bronze people. But the Ayn Rand version is very neoliberal in the sense that it's very economic. And according to her and her acolytes, you know, they're the good people that number just the few, and they're almost always white men. And uh, everybody else needs to bow down to them. And anything that's good for them is good for the society. And anything that's good for anyone else will drag the society down, will harm the very people it's intended to help. Well, it's very much, um, very much uh, free markets. You know, anything of value can be represented as a dollar value, and so the way to provide value is to, is to provide what people are most willing to pay for, and so the market basically becomes the new morality, substitutes for all of the conventional, conventional virtues. The word "give" was banned from the vocabulary of the utopian community founded by John Galt. So, uh, yeah, this has become the the sort of the Bible of the free market thinking. And yet at the same time, I think it's important to stress that if Ayn Rand never existed, that individualistic mentality would still be just as, as strong. On the one hand, she was hugely influential, but on the other hand, the tradition of individualism that she gave voice to is the dominant tradition of the last 70 years and would exist just as strongly if Ayn Rand never existed. So it's important the, the target of our critique needs to be individualism in all its forms, not just Ayn Rand's particular novel. Right. And so you were inspired by you. to create. By you. Yeah. Like it was at, was it 2000? It was 2011. We were at Duke uh, doing a conference on evolution and economics. And it was at that workshop that you or Eric said, well, you know, Ayn Rand was so successful at promulgating this through fiction. Somebody should be writing a follow-up to Atlas Shrugged. And the novelist within me said, yeah, that's right. It'll be called Atlas Hugged. The protagonist will be the grandson of John Galt, whose father, John Galt II, is a Rush Limbaugh character. And Ayn Rand, I'll transport her into my novel. She'll be Ayn Rand. She'll be John Galt III's grandmother. And it was, and it was off from there. The plot line uh, just uh, emerged right during that uh, meeting. But a lot of water has gone under the bridge, 10 years worth. And I'd really like to think a little bit about what has changed, how much progress has been made, and, um, and how much progress uh, remains to be made. So I think some things have changed. It has never been, I think, more clear 
why neoclassical economics is a failure and uh, in many ways has had a super corrosive effect on human societies and equally clear what the alternative is and and you know at the at the center of that alternative is understanding you know human economies and human societies as evolutionary systems that can evolve uh, in pro-social productive ways, but also can evolve in antisocial and non-productive ways. I would say I divide what has changed, what has progressed, what has evolved, and we'll use yeah. that word, into, into two categories. One is the science, if you can say use that word about economics. What we know, we know a lot more about human behavior. We know a, a lot more about economic policies and how they really interact in the real world. Minimum wage being a great example of that. Uh, there's just a lot more evidence that orthodox economics is wrong about things. But the other thing that I, and I think this gets back to your book, David, uh, that has changed is the narrative has evolved a lot over the past, just the past six years that I've been heavily involved, certainly over the past 10. And, you know, that's one of the things that's exciting to me about seeing your book. There's no stronger form of narrative than fiction. And we haven't had that on our side. That's right. And so just take us through the plot line of your book, Atlas Hugged. Uh, Atlas Hugged begins with a freely altered version of Atlas uh, Shrugged. There was a John Galt one, he did claim to be able to create a static electricity uh, machine, but of course that was a folly. He couldn't do it. Uh, he did form a utopian community, which fell apart immediately. And Ayn Rand uh, joined that community and she developed a cosmology, which although everything else John Galt one tried was a failure, Ayn Rand's better than real cosmology was a survivor that had been propagated around the world by a famous speech which itself was a hoax on the uh, on the airways, and then uh, they had a child, and that child became uh, basically a collaborator with Ayn Rand, and he built her objectivist philosophy into a, a social media empire, and then uh, John Galt III uh, rebelled against all of that. Well, John Galt II got married to someone who became disenchanted with the movement right off, and she managed to divorce John Galt II and steal 10% of his wealth, which passed to John Galt III, who then grew up expecting that some great thing was expected of him and that he was going to challenge his father's evil empire. So there's a kind of a dash of Star Wars here with the son rebelling against the evil father. And so well, where to go from, from, uh, from here? And so he discovers evolution as a kind of a secret of life. And I'm amused by that because secret of life is sort of a, a catchphrase that, that people use as if you can go to some wise man in a cave and he'll tell you the secret of life. But when you think of evolutionary theory as the secret of life and one that can actually be used in everyday life to guide our policies, then there's a, a nice double meaning there. And so to make a long story short, he actually succeeds in catalyzing the process of cultural evolution and bringing about a worldwide transformation in 100 days. And uh, just imagine what it would be like if that novel succeeded to the degree of Rand's novel and just became a, a fictional cosmology to match, you know, for our time, to match. Um, what, what if it had the impact of Atlas Shrugged? Just think about that. 
You mean millions of people just kind of following its philosophy uh, without thinking it through? Because that's <laughs> okay. I'll take that. I'll take that. Sure. Why not? Why not? Let's talk about well. Let's talk about that. The, the reason for writing this book, the importance of narrative, and the importance of using fiction to uh, transmit a narrative. We've always worked in our office with the idea that politics is downstream of culture. Yeah. And so if you can talk a little bit about why narrative is so important. Absolutely. And this gets evolutionary real fast. Uh, my former student, John Gottschall, wrote a book called The Storytelling Animal, How Stories Make Us, us Human. Fantastic, fantastic book, by the way. It is a fantastic, uh, fantastic book. And it has to do with the fact that we're such a symbolic species. If we want to get scientific-y about it, we can talk about such things as dual inheritance theory and stuff like that. But what it really means is that because we're human, our symbolic meaning systems are very much like our genes. And so each and every person is a collection of genes. We call that their genotype. Their genes influence everything you could measure about them. We call that their phenotype. So you have your genotype-phenotype relationship. But then, because we're humans, we also have our meaning systems. Let's call it our symbotype. And that symbotype influences everything we do. The very same phenotype is influenced by our genes. And our symbotypes and our genotypes interact with each other, not only through evolutionary time, but also in our lifetimes. For example, by upregulating and downregulating our genetic expressions. And so you could really think about that what we have in our heads as formative of what we do, like our genes, usually conveyed in stories. So what we think matters, and in the form of, of narrative most of, the, most of the time, there's something about a story that, uh, that can be much more impactful in how you think than in just intellectual discourse. And so this maybe is why neoclassical economics has been so influential because it's it's essentially a fiction. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, and it has been weaponized into a set of memes and narratives that have been enormously persuasive and have shaped the culture. And I want to bring the conversation back to economics and why and why this is so consequential for you know economics and the shape of human societies because what neoclassical economics and neoliberalism and atlas atlas shrugged taught the culture was that selfishness was the cause of prosperity right that's the main message that humans are reliably selfish creatures and it is that selfishness that is the cause of the prosperity you see around you. And, you know, by extension, the people who are most selfish, like the character John Galt, are the most prosperity creating folks in the society and should be taken seriously and worshipped eff effectively. And the thing is, is that we now know with essentially scientific certainty that that is actually not what human beings are intrinsically like at all, that we evolved over millions of years to be altruistic cooperators, mostly, other regarding yep. reciprocal and intuitively moral. And thus, it is 
broad scale cooperation that is the source of prosperity in human societies. It, that is the indispensable uh, sort of human economic characteristic. And all of that reminds me of, you know, our favorite David Sloan Wilson quote, which I think is really worth surfacing in this conversation because it speaks to the tension between selfishness and cooperation, which is that selfishness beats altruism within groups and altruistic groups beat selfish groups. Everything else is commentary. And I think that that, you know, I think that you did write a book, uh, which is a response, David, to this sort of uh, narrative of selfishness and individualism, but you're not saying, you're not making a collectivist argument either, right? Absolutely not. And I think that that's one of the important points that has to be made. And when we toggle back and forth between the fictional world and the real world, yeah. now we're in the real world, I often say there's two things that don't work. One is pure laissez-faire, because it's just not true that everyone pursuing their self-interest benefits the common good. But the other thing that never works is centralized planning. And so it's very important to, to say that every socialist experiment that's been tried, not only at the national scale, but also at the scale of business and, and kind of command and control, top-down, centralized planning doesn't work. Why? Because the world is too complex to be understood by any group of experts. And so uh, centralized planning doesn't work. Pure laissez-faire doesn't work. What does work? Not just something down the middle, but actually an explicit process of cultural evolution in which we have systemic goals in mind, we orient variation around the target of selection, and then we identify and replicate best best practices. We have to be basically consciously evolving our future is the only way that we can go about uh, doing it. You know, what I'm trying to do, what I think it's important to do for our listeners is connect, is try to connect in a more um, explicit way. Why understanding an economy as an, or, or a human society as an evolutionary system is so essential to understanding how we should organize policy to maximize welfare. One of the big questions that we get uh, in our podcast a lot is that, you know, often our listeners are super confused about our enthusiasm for markets and capitalism, which they see as having been super harmful to lots and lots of people and lots and lots of things and the planet and everything else. And, you know, the answer is evolution because properly organized markets are a super effective evolutionary system for solving human problems. And if the target of selection is right, then we create pro-social uh, solutions that actually improve people's lives and we minimize the harm that we do in the process. And that's the best way of organizing a human society yet yet invented, and it beats the crap out of any form of statism or central planning. And, and so that's, that's why it's important. I affirm that. And, and it's, so it's very affirmative to an enlightened capitalist uh, mindset. The way I would play that back would be to say that if culture, positive cultural evolution is going to take place, all kinds of changes are required, and those changes are a form of competition. Better practices yes. have to replace worse practices, and it has to happen faster than ever before. Where do those new ideas come from? Well, let it be entrepreneurial. Yeah. Let it be inclusive. Let the ideas come from everywhere. But as long as we structure markets to, so that um, that's basically where all that entrepreneurial energy uh, flows in the direction of, then that's what we've done. That's what we mean by a target 
of selection. And when we talk about orienting variation around the target, we're talking about letting a thousand flowers bloom and let the yes. ideas come from let the ideas come from uh, everywhere. So those three ingredients, selection, variation, and replication, that's what needs to be done. But the amount of work that's required in order to do it at a large scale, and ultimately it must be the planetary scale, that's an, another um, implication, is that the system has to be the whole planetary uh, system. Yeah, um, yeah. Everything, anything less will, be, will, will create problems at the scale. So this conversation raises a question for me, David, and I'm wondering if in writing a novel, uh, you struggled with what I see as a narrative asymmetry between our view of how the world works and the objectivist, neoliberal, neoclassical view. Neoclassical economics, the, the orthodox economics is actually really straightforward and simple. It presents the market as this tool for transubstantiating uh, selfishness into the common good, self-interest into the common And that is a very simple story. And it's also really compelling because it's like, oh, I can be self-interested and it's good for people that it's easy. I don't have to sacrifice anything. I can just be as individualistic as I want. Whereas the pro-social view of the world, it's, you know, it's a lot more complex. I'm just wondering how you went about, you know, it's one thing to critique Ayn Rand's construction of the world. I'm wondering how you went about taking your scientific view of how society and the economy worked and putting it into a story. Well, let me push back on some of that. For one thing, economics is anything but simple. If you actually take an economics course, it's bewildering. And so, yeah, there's a simple narrative that you could make out of greed is good. But think of all the other powerful narratives, the more conventional narratives, such as Christianity, which managed to be compelling and then to uh, basically to inculcate prosociality and, uh, and altruism. In the actual novel, John Galt III goes to college and he figures he's got to take economics in order to combat his father's uh, evil uh, empire. He flunks that course. Yeah. Um, and so he feels deeply, deeply fraudulent. And then uh, he has to hit rock bottom before he takes Howard Head's Secret of Life course. And Howard Head just makes everything clear in a single lecture, you know, variation, selection, replication, what's so hard to understand. And he kind of pulls out this instant expertise on the first day of class. And so... So um, John Galtry feels saved because, it, because at last he has a theory that makes sense of the world from day one. And the idea that evolution provides a kind of a transcendent knowledge, uh, a point that I communicate in my nonfiction books, and this is true. I mean, it's, that's why Thomas Huxley said, how stupid of me not to have thought of that. So we can, there's actually a toolkit that's so simple that anyone can master it and provides the kind of instant expertise that enabled Darwin from day one to make sense of everything that he turned his eyes upon, including the human condition. So, so uh, I, I can almost turn the tables on that and say that we have the simple narrative. We have the intuitive narrative uh, once we are able to uh, uh, construct it. Uh, Ayn Rand, her goal in writing that book, it feels like, was to leave the reader with a very particular conception of what an ideal form of human behavior was. 
like what you should be like as a person. If you had to summarize how you think someone should behave going through life and in the world, how do you characterize that? And I just, I just want to want to underscore that I, her view was perfect individualism, pure selfishness. You're actually not arguing for pure altruism. You're arguing for something more nuanced. But what is it? How how would you describe it? Well, I describe it with the stack of symbols that uh, is on the cover of the book, and it also in, in real life would would describe it as multi level selection. But in the book, in the novel. There is a the symbolic representation of the new the true objectivist movement is a stack of symbols with the earth on top. Underneath that's the American flag. Underneath that there's a circle, and underneath that there's a a dot. And so the earth, of course, stands for a whole earth ethic. First and foremost, we should be uh, regarding ourselves as uh, human beings and citizens of the earth. That should be the primary social identity. Now, that doesn't make other identities go away, not by any means. The point, the dot at the bottom is the individual. That's not the least of it. That's in some ways the most of it. The whole system is to make individuals uh, thriving. But the way to do that is for individuals to form into groups. And, and a very central message, both in the book and in real life, is the small group as, the, as a fundamental unit of human society. Large-scale society must be multicellular, and the cell is not the individual. It's the small, purposeful, uh, and appropriately structured uh, group. And I think that's one of the biggest differences between individualism in all of its forms and multi-level selection theory is the identification of the small, purposeful group as a fundamental unit. There's something we can do right away is to uh, reconstitute that level of human society. And then what the American flag represents is all our current institutions of all kinds that are needed in order to translate global policy, what's good for the globe, has to be translated into what's good for the nation, cities, and so on. And so that's the total conception, which is, I mean, I'm trying to ask, is that more complicated than what economics is telling us? I don't know. But but uh, since... Um, the individualistic economics failed. It's not really material. The main question is: Can this be communicate? Can this can this multi-level view be communicated in a way which is, which is compelling? And if I did my job as a as a storyteller, then then it has. Well, listen. Uh, it has been so great to catch up. Right. Um, uh, oh, we we always have to ask our final question, which is, Goldie, why do you do this work? No, I mean. The pro-social impulse, that's part. That's a good way to end, you guys, because um, I think that um, the idea that we're all selfish, fundamentally selfish, of course, is the idea that we're, we're combating. And when you think that pro-sociality, the desire to help others and all of us can be uh, as deeply rooted as the desire just to do well for oneself. So I'm motivated uh, pro-socially. I'm an empath. So what gets me out of that is the idea that there actually is a way to make this world uh, better. There is a, a path, you might say, and uh, that that is as motivating for me as any religious belief that I that I know. What I want to do is I want to create a cosmology and a and a meaning system which is as motivational 
as any other belief system that's out there. But in this case, motivates the correct behaviors because it's science driven. I love it. It's a fantastic answer, actually. Well, David, thank you so much for being with us. And, uh, thank you. Can't wait for the next book. <laughs> well, that's it. Uh, actually, don't wait for that. Just read the one I just wrote. And uh, <laughs> gifted, gifted, not sold, available only at, on atlashug.world. And all proceeds going, anything you wish to give in return goes to support my nonprofit, ProSocial World, where we attempt to implement all of this in the real world. That, that was a wide-ranging interview, but you know, if I had to sum it up, I just think that the thing about Atlas Shrugged, the novel, and Ayn Rand's view of the world, and certainly Milton Friedman's view of the world, and Alan Greenspan's view of the world, and they don't see it as an evolutionary system. They see it as this sort of mechanical, hierarchical system that have at the center the doers or the makers or the job creators or whatever it is. Individuals. And, yeah, individuals. Right. As Margaret rather Thatcher than, said, there, there is no society. There's just individuals and, and families. families. Right. right. And, and that's just objectively false. That's just not how human societies operate. And that view does not explain where prosperity, stability, and security come from. And David's novel, uh, particularly for people who have not wasted their time as we have <laughs> studying the very the, the very technical particulars of all of this, it's a great way to explore these issues and get an intuitive sense for what's right and what's wrong. You know, when you look at these two books in comparison, when you look at Ayn, Ayn Rand's philosophy uh, as it's presented in Atlas Shrugged and her other books, it basically just champions the, the individual as the fundamental unit of uh, human society. Whereas in, in David's evolutionary philosophy, and as he rep represents it in Atlas Hugged, it's that pro-social view that basically looks at the group as the right. fundamental unit right of human society. And the thing that's really important is that whereas Ayn Rand pulled her view of the world out of the broader cultural milieu in which she was raised and which she found herself, David's pulling this out of actual science, that this is how we evolved. We evolved to exist and thrive within small groups of you know, no more than 100, 150 individuals, often quite smaller than that. And as a species that could not survive on the individual level. Yeah. We only survive. It wasn't just thriving within a group. It was the only way we survived because we're, we're actually not that rugged a, um, yeah. an animal. We don't compete well with lions one-on-one. No. Uh, -on -one. But no. as a group... We do quite well. That's right. And also competing with other groups of humans. That's right. Yeah. And it is remarkable how durable the myth of the rugged individual is, given how objectively obvious it is that no individual on their own can survive, you know, much less thrive. So anyway, uh, fun conversation. David is always, you know, he's such a smart and interesting person. And uh, hopefully he'll write some more fun books for us to talk about.
So in the next episode of Pitchfork Economics, we get to talk to our old friend, Andrew Yang, uh, about his thoughts on economics and otherwise. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.